This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey guys, Michael Roundtree here with Remnant Radio. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Uh, Josh Lewis is at a water park today, so I'm in the driver's seat. Uh, We have an exciting show today. You might have just seen him on the screen. Uh, Dr. Uh, Fazl Rana with Reasons to Believe. Uh, He wants us to call him Fuzz. That's his nickname. And we're going to be talking about the historical Adam. Lots of fascinating conversations coming up in the next hour. So you guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Okay, guys, well, welcome back to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Uh, So excited to have you guys join us. Before we dive into this conversation, just a few things uh, to maybe uh, encourage you to do, to check out. First of all, it always helps us if you hit that like button, if you haven't done that yet. If you hit that subscribe button, went over 100,000 subscribers here pretty recently, so kind of exciting. Uh, It also helps us out if you consider just uh, clicking on the description of this video. You can find ways to help us out. We're a crowdfunded ministry. You can make a one-time donation uh, by clicking on the PayPal link, or if you want to make a recurring donation for as little as $5 a month, uh, you can have access to exclusive content that we produce. So uh, if you would, consider either one of those. And then one more thing I want you to know about that's also in the link of this description is uh, is our e-course, the, the Word and Spirit School of Ministry. And so we've put together really 20 years of material, both teaching material and experience, and, uh, and we want to help you learn to exercise the spiritual gifts in a way that is uh, theologically, biblically responsible. So it's a 13-week program that begins in September, and there's about three to five hours a week of homework and watching various videos and things like that. And, uh, and we'll do a live Q&A every, uh, every week. So uh, really helpful. We've had a lot of people go through this course and, uh, and singing its praises and, and, uh, and saying it's been really helpful to them on their journey. And so, uh, and so you guys make sure that you check that out. Now, uh, without further ado, uh, Michael Miller is joining us today. He's usually with us on Wednesdays, but he's going to join us today on Monday since Josh is out of town with the fam. Miller, how are you doing over there in the basement? Uh, you know, keeping it real in the basement, bro. Uh, I actually just talked to your wife on my way home before getting here to uh, schedule a flight out there. So I'm going to be coming to join you guys there in OKC on Thursday. The I guess that's the 20th. I'm coming yeah. out late Wednesday night and leaving uh, late the next day. So just a quick trip, but I'm excited to be with you guys. Excited to be here on the show today and talking about the uh, historical Adam. So this should be fun. Yeah. Yeah, he's coming up. We're filming actually a second e-course, which is for pastors and elders, people who are trying to uh, to get the all the spiritual gifts operating in their churches. And so, uh, anyway, so we're we're working on that. And so, and my wife Alicia works with Remnant Radio and kind of helps us stay organized. Okay, uh, but now let's jump in, uh, Miller. I agree with you. This is an exciting conversation, and we we read the story in Genesis, and there's so so many questions. There's the the scripture and the science. Do these contradictions? or do they complement one another? All these kinds of questions and and many more. And so uh, Dr. Rana, 
uh, we'll call you Fuzz from here out. But uh, Fuzz, could you just tell us uh, maybe a little bit about yourself and your ministry so we can, uh, so people know how to connect with you? Because uh, I know we're, we've invited you back on the show. Uh, guys, he did, he did a, an excellent show uh, earlier this year on transhumanism. And so we, t- we talked through uh, all the ins and outs of that. And so, we just, man, let's have this guy back on and written this book about the historical Adam we're going to talk through. So, uh, Fuzz, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, um, uh, I've been a Christian for 37 years, and I came to faith in Christ in part because uh, as a biochemist studying biochemical systems, I came to appreciate the elegance and the beauty of those systems. And when I looked to uh, try to account for those systems through evolutionary processes, I realized that evolution could not produce the elegance that you see inside the cell. And that convinced me there had to be a creator. And that in turn opened me up to the gospel, uh, responding really to uh, the, the work of Christ on the cross, that I wasn't really able to properly understand or apprehend the gospel as an agnostic because I wasn't convinced that a creator existed. But once I became convinced that a creator existed, I started asking the question, well, who is that creator? How do I relate to that creator? And to me, the best answer to those questions was recognizing that the creator is the God of the Bible and that I could relate to that creator through the person of Christ who gave himself up for all of us uh, on the cross so that not only our sins could be forgiven, but we could be reconciled to the Father. So uh, science played a really important role in my conversion to Christianity. And uh, about 24 years ago, I had the opportunity to join uh, the organization that I work for now, Reasons to Believe. If people want to know more about Reasons to Believe, check out our website, reasons.org. Our purpose is to open people to the gospel by revealing God in science, where our ultimate vision is to see people from all over the world, from all walks of life, from all communities, Uh, see God revealed in creation, to fall in love with him, and to embrace the gospel. Uh, That's what we're about. Uh, The organization was founded by astronomer Hugh Ross, who is still active with Reasons to Believe, but in uh, July of last year, I took over the leadership of Reasons to Believe, so I'm now uh, currently the president of the organization. But again, if if people want to know more about Reasons to Believe, I would invite them to, to take a look at our website, reasons.org. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's great. Well, I, I want uh, for our viewers to know just kind of our approach to the show. And in and, uh, Fuzz's book, The Historical Adam, which he wrote with Hugh Ross, he walks through different uh, points to a scientific creation model that are rooted in the scripture. So a few of them, for instance, number one, God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, both physically and spiritually through direct intervention. Number two, all humanity came from Adam and Eve. Number three, humanity originated in a single geographical location, the Garden of Eden, and so on. There's about 10 or 12 of these, and we're going to get through as many of these as we can, and each of them we have a few sort of corollary questions. But basically their approach is they they begin with the Scripture, and they say, well, what does the Scripture say must be true about creation? Now, uh, and I'll just kind of cat out of the bag here. Fuzz is an old earth creationist. He's not a, a young earth guy. We've had representatives of old earth, young earth. We're not going to get into that debate and why he believes one way or another. That's a, another conversation for another day. But I just want you to know he's going to come with that, uh, with that assumption. If you believe differently, you're welcome. We celebrate. We'll all be in heaven together uh, worshiping Jesus. Uh, neither here nor there. We're going to walk through these one by one. We'll have a few questions. Uh, questions for each. So, Fuzz, I'm just going to begin with the first one of these, which I just read. God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, both physically and spiritually through direct intervention. And so, uh, first of all, maybe just help us unpack this this question. What precisely do you mean by God created them? Uh, What do you mean by he created them physically and spiritually? What do you mean by direct intervention? Yeah, and, and, um, you know, just to take a step back, you know, our our project is, uh, with, re- with regard to the question of human origins, is to, as you're pointing out, to remain biblically faithful, but also to take the scientific evidence related to human origins seriously and looking to integrate those in, in the best possible model that, again, is biblically faithful 
and biblically inspired, but, but also, again, uh, treats the science uh, with integrity. And there are a number of uh, evangelical and conservative Christians who increasingly are entertaining the idea that maybe God used evolution as the means to create. And as someone who holds to an old earth position, oftentimes people conflate old earth creationism with theistic evolution. And so we would uh, question whether evolutionary mechanisms have the capacity to produce human beings, that we really see human beings as the, the direct product of God's creative activity, that uh, God did not employ evolution as the means to create, but again, rather directly intervened. And so, for example, when you look at Genesis 2-7, you know, Adam is made from the dust of the earth and that God breathes the breath of life into him. And, and so we see that as indicating that the creation of Adam was a direct event. It was a an event where God was personally involved in bringing that about as opposed to God creating indirectly through evolutionary mechanisms. And, and many people who hold to an evolutionary view of human origins as Christians oftentimes will say that, you know, God's fingerprints are not evident in the evolutionary process, but rather God is working uh, in ways that are invisible to us. And and we would uh, question that in, in from a biblical perspective where scripture tells us that God is clearly revealed through the record of nature and that we see God's fingerprints in nature and that these fingerprints again, reflect God's direct involvement in, in bringing about acts of creation. It's not to say that God cannot or does not create through process, but at least when it comes to the origin of humanity, we see this as a, as a, a direct involvement on God's part. Now, the idea of distinguishing between physical and spiritual creation is that there are some people who hold the view that God created human beings through an evolutionary process producing our physical makeup, but that our spiritual makeup was something where God directly intervened to infuse a, a spirit in some kind of hominin, right? And so what we're saying here is that not only was our physical aspect of our being created through God's direct intervention, so too was our physical aspect. Okay, so when you say that that uh, you would differ with the evolutionary or evolutionary creation, I, I you got you have to help me with the term here, uh, evolutionary creation. You're saying that God divinely intervened in creating Adam and Eve, but that doesn't necessarily negate the idea that evolution has still happened since then. Is that am I understanding this correctly? Is evolution uh, yes, a fact? Uh, yeah, and and you know our position on on evolution is a bit nuanced. <laughs> and so, you, okay. you know, your, your, your question is a really good question. Uh, you know, at, 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 our, um, at RTB, we take the view that um, things like microevolution, speciation, evolution that you would see in microorganisms is well established. And this, what we, what we see here is that, th that these are core designs that then can be fine-tuned or can be adjusted and modified in response to changes that are taking place in the environment. Uh, on the other hand, we question whether evolutionary mechanisms have bona fide creative potential. So when it comes to something like the origin of life, where the first cells emerge out of a, a chemical soup, we would say there's no good scientific explanation for how that could happen in evolutionary terms, that this is a place where clearly a creator has intervened. Or when we talk about macroevolutionary changes, one major group giving rise to another group, or evolutionary mechanisms generating biological novelty, here's again a place where we question if evolutionary mechanisms are sufficient and argue that a creator has to intervene, has to be directly involved uh, in those events. So when it comes to the question of human origins, we would say, yeah, the, the hominins, you know, Neanderthals, Lucy, you know, creatures like that uh, were real creatures that existed for a period of time that went extinct and that some of them may be related to each other through microevolution, 
but that we see distinct groups in those hominins, like the Australopithecines, the Habilines, the Erectines, for example, what might be called the, the archaic uh, uh, Homo sapiens as being distinct groups that God created that then could vary through evolutionary mechanisms uh, to produce microevolutionary changes or even uh, account for some speciation, but that ultimately that our history as human beings is not an evolutionary history, but it is a creation history. Uh, does that does that help, Michael? Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm wondering. Does that mean you're saying that there's a a massive leap from Neanderthal to human being today, or Homo sapien, or are you saying that 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 the Neanderthal origins have to be that of God? That it could just exist exist from some sort of uh, chemical soup. Uh, uh, and then from there it evolved to what we are today. Is that yeah? I, no, I, I would two? see God intervening throughout life's history to bring up to bring about uh, key transitions, to bring about key biological innovations. Where once that happens, then evolutionary processes could take place to a limited degree. Uh, so again, microevolution, not macro. Exactly. That, exactly. Okay. Right. And and you know to me. Uh, there are biological similarities between humans and Neanderthals and the other hominins, between humans and the great apes, really between humans and other life forms. And we would argue that that, that similarity isn't a reflection of shared evolutionary ancestry, but it actually reflects uh, shared designs. And in fact, uh, prior to Darwin, scientists were well aware of the fact that organisms had shared designs. Uh, these are called homologies. That's the technical term. And scientists like Sir Richard Owen said, well, these homologies, these shared designs are archetypical designs that existed in the mind of a creator that were then functionally manifested in the created order. Uh, and so we would say, well, the, the biological similarities we see between humans and the great apes, between humans and again, the hominins reflects shared designs. And in fact, when we, you look at Genesis 2-7, Adam is made from the dust of the earth. God breathes the breath of life into Adam. Genesis 2-19 tells us that the animals too were created from the dust of the earth, but they do not receive the divine breath. And so what distinguishes us between the other animals, according to how I read Genesis 2, isn't our physical makeup. It's actually the fact that we uniquely have a spiritual aspect to us. We, we uniquely possess the image of God, which is a, an immaterial part of our nature. And so we would argue that, yes, indeed, we do share biological similarities with Neanderthals, but we also are markedly distinct from them in that we bear God's image and Neanderthals don't, which means that we would expect there to be behavioral differences between modern humans and Neanderthals that we could infer uh, from the archaeological record that would reflect the presence and the absence of, of the image of God, the presence in modern humans, which is us and, and Neanderthals. Okay, so it sounds like what you're what you're saying is so there there are some who think, okay, theistic evolution and God was the one kind of organizing and orchestrating or at least overseeing evolution and making sure it reached humanity and then at the right point blip inserted image of god into people and so so you have that kind of strand of thought but then it sounds like what you're saying is hey there are these animals and there were hominids and neanderthal and all these things that looked like people but really weren't and they they exhibited characteristics that were different and they didn't have the image of God and all that. And then kind of independently of that over here, God breathes into the dust of the earth and, and forms man. Is it something like that? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. That's, a, that's a, exactly the position. So the, one way to think about it is we kind of are in between, we live in between uh, a theistic evolutionary perspective or an evolutionary creation perspective, roughly equivalent terms and young earth creationism. We kind of are are in between those two positions, if that helps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll ask a follow-up question because you mentioned archaeological evidence. So uh, is there what is the archaeological evidence that distinguishes Homo sapiens made in the image of God 
from, from Neanderthal and these other and or the monkey. hominids, right? So what right. what is some of the kind of scientific background for why you would make this claim? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, to be cl- clear, there's a, a raging debate now among anthropologists as to what were, was the cognitive capacity of Neanderthals. Some take the view that Neanderthals were very much like us. Others take the view that, that Neanderthals were really uh, cognitively distinct from us. And I think increasingly the evidence is leaning in favor of the idea that Neanderthals were cognitively distinct from us and probably cognitively inferior. Uh, and, and, um, and so, for example, when we look at the archaeological record, one of the things that we see is something that has been dubbed the sociocultural Big Bang. That is, when modern humans appear on the scene, there seems to be this explosive, uh, 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 discontinuous uh, advance in technology as revealed by the archaeological record where out of nowhere, suddenly rather sophisticated behavior is evident from the archaeological record. Most importantly, the capacity for symbolism, the capacity to represent the world um, symbolically. Uh, And so you see this manifested in the form of art, in the form of artifacts that reflect, uh, you know, the the capacity to perform music. Uh, So symbolism would manifest with regard to art, music, as well as language, language isn't something that's going to be be left behind in the archaeological record, but art and and other artifacts are, and so they stand they serve as a stand-in for symbolic capabilities. So we see symbolism uniquely associated with modern humans. Now there are some claims that Neanderthals displayed symbolic abilities, but these claims are heavily disputed and are based on, you know, kind of speculative interpretations of, of archaeological evidence. So it's, it's questionable if, if Neanderthals, again, had symbolic capabilities. One of the, the features of the archaeological record that really convinces me that modern humans are fundamentally different than Neanderthals is the trajectory that technology takes for Neanderthals compared to modern humans. Neanderthals were on Earth longer than modern humans have been on Earth, and their technology remained largely static uh, throughout the duration of Neanderthal's existence. Modern humans have been on Earth on the order of maybe 100 to 150,000 years, so a much shorter time than Neanderthals have been on Earth, and our technology goes from a primitive technology to being able to put human beings on the moon. And, And so there's this very rapid, sharp, increase in our uh, technology that could only find explanation if humans had something distinct about us, something that separates us from Neanderthals. And here, from a scientific perspective, I would argue that it's our symbolic capabilities. And I see symbolism as being connected to the image of God, that that part of the the manifestation of the imago Dei in human beings is this capacity for symbolism. And, and so we actually, we actually see that. Uh, there, there are um, uh, a growing number of anthropologists who are now arguing, yes, indeed, humans truly are different in kind, not different in degree compared to Neanderthals and other hominins, that, again, we really do stand apart. And they would argue, again, it's largely due to our capacity for symbolism. There's also been some very interesting work done where people are now beginning to understand the brain structure of Neanderthals uh, relative to modern humans. And the more that we probe the brain structure, the more that we see that there are some significant differences. And those differences are in brain regions that would be playing a role in giving the, the capacity or imparting modern humans, the capacity for language, for math, uh, and, and, and those types of processes, those types of mental processes. So it's not only the archaeological record, but that what we're learning about Neanderthal brain biology that are painting this coherent picture uh, that Neanderthals really were not comparable to, to us as humans in that, again, what seems to separate us is 
the capacity for symbolism, which again, I think connects to the image of God. Well, it almost provides in some level the proof for your next statement that all humanity has come from Adam and Eve. Uh, is that correct? Like that all of these things, the fact that uh, human beings were capable of these kind of things like symbolism and then eventually technology of different sorts, it's so markedly contrasted to that of the Neanderthal that there must have been an Ad a, a creation of Adam and Eve. Uh, but you have further evidence to, to back that claim. Uh, what is meant by the, the phrase or the term chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve? Yeah, well, um, it, th th these are uh, you know, types of genetic material that are found in human cells. In fact, in cells of, of all organisms, uh, you know, each cell has a, a group of organelles called mitochondria that power the cell's operations, among other things. And each of the mitochondria have circular pieces of DNA. And it turns out that the inheritance of that DNA is from mother to child. So I have three biological daughters, and my three biological daughters don't have my mitochondrial DNA. They have the, the mitochondrial DNA that came from my wife, and in turn, from her mother and from her grandmother. And so mitochondrial DNA is a special type of DNA that gives you insight into the maternal lineage of, a, of, an, of, a, of an organism. Uh, y chromosomal DNA in humans is uh, inherited from father to son, right? And so these are two pieces of DNA that give us insight into the maternal and the paternal lineage of humanity respectively. And they also are interesting pieces of DNA in that they don't undergo recombination. And because of their clean pattern of inheritance and because they don't undergo recombination, they give us an interesting marker uh, that allows us to probe genetically the early history of humanity. And it turns out that for both mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosomal DNA, we can show similar patterns that, that for mitochondrial DNA, if we sample mitochondrial DNA from people around the world, we can literally work our way backwards to an ancestral sequence called mitochondrial Eve that some scientists believe corresponds to a single female individual. Likewise, with Y chromosomal wow. DNA, we can show that every man on the planet traces an origin back to a single ancestral sequence dubbed Y chromosomal Adam. And again, some people think corresponds to a single male individual. Now, it's tempting to say mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam were the biblical Adam and Eve. Uh, I think for technical reasons, you can't quite say that, but it is interesting because you now have this these scientific concepts that show obvious resonance with the biblical account of human origins. You know, evolutionary biologists would say that there were Many, many Eves and many Adams that you just happen to have, you know, with mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam, the lucky man and lucky woman who had their genetic material survive till this very day, uh, and that the other lineages all died out eventually. And that's something that you can show mathematically would take place. But again, you've got this really provocative idea that suggests that, uh, you know, the biblical account of human origins um, very well may have credibility that you really may be able to make a case scientifically that there were two individuals uh, that, that gave rise to humanity. Okay, so why do most scientists say that uh, the, the majority of scientists argue that humanity derived not from two individuals and in Adam and Eve, like we would say as Bible-believing Christians, but from thousands of different kind of sources just kind of cropping up. Why, why are they making that argument? Well, part of it has to do with the nature of evolutionary theory. Um, this is a, a point that I don't think is often fully appreciated, uh, and that is that evolution is a population-level phenomena. It's not doesn't happen among individuals. So populations evolve, individuals don't. And, and so... Um, that takes may take a little bit of time to wrap your mind around, but because of that idea, 
if you're viewing the origin of humanity in evolutionary terms, by definition, there has to be a population. There can't be two individuals that produced uh, humanity. That's just endemic in evolutionary theory. And then on top of that, people also have argued, while the genetic variability of people around the world is far too extensive for it to come from two individuals, therefore, uh, it has to come from a population where people develop mathematical models where they say the approximate size of humanity at its onset must have been on the order of several thousand individuals, not two individuals. Uh, but uh, a number of, of, of things to consider here is one is that this is based on mathematical modeling. And I'm not completely convinced that these mathematical models actually are performing in a reliable way not to get into the technical details as to why that is. Uh, but also, interestingly enough, nobody has really ever asked the question, could you start with two individuals and actually explain the genetic diversity that we see today? Everybody starts with the genetic diversity using mathematical models and works their way backward. And a few years ago, uh, a biologist by the name of Ann Gager and a mathematician by the name of Olaf Hosser actually did the, the former experiment where they said, could we start with two individuals and actually produce the genetic diversity that we see today? And they argued that certain models would actually allow for that to be possible if humanity had an origin about 100,000 years ago. Uh, so, you know, this idea uh, that we could have come from two individuals is in fact quite possible. Uh, my friend, uh, Josh Schwamadas, who is a... Um, scientist who works at uh, Washington University in St. Louis uh, ha has pointed out to me that these mathematical models are actually giving us what's called time average population sizes, not instantaneous population sizes. And what time average population sizes means is that you, there's a window in which you're calculating the average population throughout the course of that window of time, let's say 10,000 years. But because you have an average population size, it means that at the beginning of that window, you could actually start with two individuals who very rapidly expand as a population so that over that 10,000 year window of time, you could have a time average population of 10,000 while at the same time starting with two individuals. Uh, and, and, and by the way, uh, Josh Swamidas is is an evolutionary creationist. He's not... Uh, an old earth creationist or a young earth creationist. Uh, but he acknowledges that, again, these population size numbers are, are not incompatible with humanity starting with two individuals. That's fascinating. Okay, so you have to help me fit all this together and maybe give me some definitions. So we've got uh, Neanderthals, hominids, and human beings. How do they all fit together then? Uh, are, would you say that the, the hominids and, uh, and uh, Neanderthals were just another creation of God like any other animal and that humans were the, dis, a distinct creation with them? And how would you define humanity? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, uh, and and your, Michael, your, your initial point is exactly what I would hold to is that we would see that these hominins were creatures that were created by God, like all other creatures, like the great apes, that had some measure of intelligence, emotional capacities, fascinating creatures in their own right, uh, but they were creatures that lacked the image of God. Uh, why God created them, I don't know. <laughs> you know, and there's it's fun to speculate as to what may be the reason for God doing that, uh, but that... I would see them again as being distinct from, from modern humans. Uh, and, and I would say that because we are, as human beings are in Adam and we all are modern humans, that Adam too must have been a modern human and that modern humans must have been the product of God's direct activity of creation uh, where he's intervening in a direct personal way to bring about the creation of these unique creatures that bear his image that can uniquely enter into a relationship with him, unlike any other relationship that the creator could have with any other creature that he has made. 
Uh, and that, you know, the idea that, again, human beings are exceptional and that we are unique and our capacity for symbolism uh, is, again, kind of a scientific piece of evidence that supports the idea that, that we were, again, made in, in God's image. So that would be the, the perspective that we would, we would hold. And so I would define human in a theological sense as, as creatures that bear God's image, and that it seems to me scientifically that the, the creature that fits the bill would be, again, anatomically and behaviorally modern humans. Okay, so so we've looked at your first point. God created the first humans, both physically and spiritually, through divine intervention. We've looked at your second point. All humanity came from Adam and Eve. We've looked at the development of culture and music and art and all of that, and we've explored evolutionary theory and uh, and shown what distinguishes human beings from other hominids, from hominids, etc. Uh, but now let's jump to your third point, okay? And that is that humanity originated in a single geographical location, the Garden of Eden. Okay, so that's clear from the biblical story. But the story that science is telling us is typically uh, humanity originated in Africa, or humanity originated in Africa and a number of various places. So how do you, first of all, where is the Garden of Eden? And, uh, and second of all, how, how do you defend this scientifically that our human ancestors, that Adam and Eve came from such a location? Yeah, well, you know, the, the Garden of Eden clearly includes Mesopotamia, but when you look at the, the, the Genesis 2 account, the Garden of Eden uh, seems to be delineated by four rivers, the Tigris, Euphrates, which we know where they are at today, and the Pishon and the Gihon rivers, which are dead river systems. And, and so I've seen some people argue that given the location of those where we, where we think those dead rivers may have been, and the fact that there's mention of the land of Cush uh, uh, with regard to the Garden of Eden, which was understood as Ethiopia, I think you could make the case that the Garden of Eden very well could have most likely resided at the bottom of the Persian Gulf and extended into parts of Africa, parts of East Africa. Now, the precise location for humanity's origin in Africa is is uh, I think still under uh, under construction, if you will, from a, a scientific perspective. But there are some models that would place humanity's origin in East Africa or near you know the eastern part of Africa. So you know, given you know the the fact that when you're determining humanity's location scientifically, you're essentially looking at these genetic maps that you're producing, showing how different people groups relate to each other and mapping that onto the, the map of the world where we see that the oldest populations are in Africa. Uh, and that is, again, uh, when we're just assuming that where those population groups are today is where they have always been. So the fact that we're, we're seeing, uh, again, an origin of humanity scientifically in East Africa versus Again, the biblical account, which is primarily Mesopotamia, but very well may extend into East Africa, suggests that we don't have perfect scientific demonstration uh, of, of humanity's origin or location of humanity's origin that matches the biblical text, but we're beginning to approx see an approximation. Things are beginning to harmonize. Uh, it's that, that location of humanity's origin in, in the e East Africa isn't completely outlandish in light of the biblical text. Given, again, scientific uncertainties, biblical uncertainties, and some of the limitations as to how we would scientifically determine where we think humanity would have originated. So the other claim you make is that God created Adam and Eve relatively recently, between 10,000 and 100,000 years ago. Now, how did you come to that uh, sort of broad range um, of dates using the scriptures and scientific? Yeah. Give us both. Yeah, well, you know, it's, I mean, the, first of all, the idea that humans would be have been created recently makes sense because we are the last of God's uh, creative acts. So we would expect relative to other life forms that we should be relatively recently appearing here on earth, right? And, you know, the 
that window of time of 10 to 100,000 years is a ballpark estimate, uh, in a sense, utilizing the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. And when I wrote the first edition of Who Was Adam, uh, I would have argued that that using the genealogies we and, and noting that there are gaps in the genealogies and things like that, that, you know, you could reasonably say humanity could have originated, again, between 10 and 100,000 years ago, where 100,000 years would have been an extreme. Since the, 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 even the second edition of the book has been published, the more that I've studied uh, the genealogies and how to read the genealogies, the less certain I am that you can actually develop a scientific date for Adam and Eve's creation from Scripture alone. Uh, people like Ken Kitchen and, and other uh, Hebrew scholars have argued that really the genealogies shouldn't be used as timekeeping constructs. They really are theological constructs where key patriarchs in the lineage from Adam to Noah are mentioned, key patriarchs in the lineage from Noah to Abraham are mentioned uh, in, in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, respectively, and that to do anything else with those genealogies would really be a violation of what the intent of the author was. Uh, and so in light of that, uh, I would argue that scripture is really best understood as being silent as to when Adam and Eve were created. And we really need to rely on the scientific record, which today seems to indicate somewhere between 100 and 150,000 years ago where the very first humans appear on the scene. The scientific dating methods have a high degree of uncertainty connected to them. You also are dealing with a fossil record and an archaeological record that is incomplete. So you don't really have the, the scientific data to pinpoint the, the point where modern humans do indeed appear. But I don't think the biblical text actually tells us that. That would be at least my, my current thinking. But even then, a ballpark estimate of 10 to 100,000 years ago, though misguided, actually isn't a bad estimation in, in light of what the scientific evidence says. Okay, so uh, so let's look at your next point. I think it kind of comes out of that one. So humanity's female lineage, you say, should trace back to an earlier date than the male lineage. So th the question I have for you is, why would you claim that biblically? Because most people would think, well, Adam and Eve they were created at the same time. So why would the female lineage go back further? Uh, could you explain why you would say that and maybe what the science speaks into that as well? Yeah, well, um, when, you, when you look at, at um, those people who survived the flood, uh, according to the biblical text, it was Noah and his three sons. They all would have had the same Y chromosome, whereas... Noah's wife and the wives of his three sons could have potentially had different mitochondrial DNA sequences. Different mitochondrial haplotypes would be the technical term, which means that you could actually see the origin of the female lineage going back earlier than the origin of the male lineage for that reason. Uh, and uh, at the time when the first edition of Who Was Adam was published, one of the features that was a bit disconcerting was that mitochondrial Eve was much older than Y chromosomal Adam. In more recent times, however, uh, scientists have uh, looked at the dates for mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam and have actually seen them converge uh, closer and closer to one another. Uh, and so that really nifty argument that we could, we could make when the first edition of Who Was Adam was published isn't um, isn't as isn't as plausible today as it was, you know, uh, whatever, uh, almost 20 years ago, 15 years ago or so. So that's a place where our our model is a bit in flux. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure. One of the weaknesses of our model is how do we really make sense of the the flood account in light of you know, the, the genetic data and the, the concepts of mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam. So that's a place where we're still uh, working on things, where things are still in flux, where uh, our earlier thinking 
seem to be nicely buttoned down and new advances kind of turn some things upside down. Uh, and and uh, let me you know offer a bit of commentary here. I mean, our, our project is really a dynamic ongoing project where we're looking at uh, you know, producing a creation model that again is faithful to the biblical text, but is also uh, faithful to the scientific evidence and trying to integrate them in a way that supports a traditional biblical view of human origins, uh, where there is a historical Adam as the sole progenitor of all humanity, where Adam is uniquely made in God's image. That's really our project. And, and so because scientific advances take place, because biblical insights develop over time, our, our project is always a dynamic project where, um, you know, we are forced to revise our model uh, in light of advances that are taking place, both theologically as well as uh, scientifically. But what we see over time is that even though there may be aspects of our model that that become weaker or less certain. There are other aspects of the model that become actually more certain and, and more uh, more robust. And so the, the overall trend is that the model is performing pretty well, though again, there are places where uh, we've had to revise in light of what the data says. So it sounds like the, the data is actually showing uh uh, aligning more closely with the the Genesis account of Adam and Eve, uh, and not the opposite. Uh, well, and not the same as the claim that was being made earlier. Um, so, next claim was God prepared the planet for humanity's advent, then created Adam and Eve at a special moment in Earth's history. Okay, well, how did He prepare the planet uh, for that particular advent of humanity? Uh, what was so special about that timing? It being just right uh, of their creation. Yeah, and, and this is uh, a contribution that uh, my co-author Hugh Ross made to Who Was Adam, which is to, to point out that uh, that when you look at the history of the Earth and look, we look at the history of our solar system, that there are these windows of time that, ki- that all line up to be just right for not only human life, but for human civilization to exist. That if humanity was created any earlier or any later in Earth's history, the conditions of the Earth may have allowed for humanity to survive, but would not have made human civilization possible. So for example, uh, we live at a point in time where solar flaring activity is at its minimum. And, and if humanity was created before that time or after that time, human civilization simply wouldn't be possible uh, as, as one example. And so what Hugh does in, in Who is Adam is, again, show how it's quite eerie that a number of these windows uh, that all seem to coincide with each other at the just right time uh, in which humanity comes into existence. And so what you, you could can you know infer from that is that indeed God was you know creating a a place in uh, and a time for humanity's arrival that would really again allow for human flourishing uh, and would allow for human beings to fulfill the command to multiply and to fill fill the earth to subdue the earth to bring the earth under our control that that would only be possible at certain uh, at, at, at a just right point in time in Earth's history. And it's interesting that this is exactly when modern humans appear on the scene. Uh, and, and this looks like, again, it's a divine fingerprint. And, you, and when you look at overall the Genesis 1 creation account, you know, God is introducing different life forms at different times in Earth's history. That, that it's very clear in the Genesis 1 account that that the earth is undergoing a transformation that's making it a place that's suitable for life. And again, that God is progressively introducing different life forms at different times in earth's history. You can see this as a a progression in which God is preparing the place ultimately for the creation of uh, his crown of creation, namely modern humans. 
Okay, so you talked about that command to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1, but the command appears again uh, in relate, uh, just after the flood, when Noah and his family and his sons and their wives survive. They're told again to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you mentioned the flood a little bit ago, but this gives rise to a couple more of your theses for this creation model. I'm going to read them. Uh, it's two different ones, but they're related. The first one is, lifespans of the first human beings were on the order of several hundred years and became significantly shorter after the flood, which is related to a universal flood shaped early human history. So uh, could you explain the relationship between the flood and people's ages and how those interrelate with one another? Yeah, that great questions. And um, let, let's start with the long lifespans uh, and, and we'll go from there. You know, uh, uh, many skeptics that I've interacted with are highly dismissive of Genesis 1 through 11 because of the long lifespans that we see in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. They see this as an absurdity. In fact, there is a, a growing number of Christian scholars who argue that these long lifespans, again, seem to be an absurdity and that they make sense if we are viewing Genesis 1 through 11 uh, in light of the ancient Near Eastern creation accounts that would have been contemporaries of, the, of Genesis 1 through 11. That is, those long lifespans reflect the practices of other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, where uh, their exaggerated lifespans uh, ascribed to kings or to patriarchs, highlighting their, their importance uh, more so than actually communicating a, a scientific or a historical reality. Uh, and so one of our part of our model is that is the idea that these long lifespans were literally true. And then the question becomes, is this even scientifically plausible? Well, uh, it's interesting, but in recent years, there's been quite a bit of advance in our understanding of the biology of aging. It used to be thought that aging was just an inevitable part of being a human being. Uh, and now there's more and more uh, uh, biogerontologists who argue that aging actually shouldn't be viewed as inevitable, but that we could think about aging in the same way that we think about a disease, meaning that we could treat it that we might even be able to not only arrest the aging process, but even reverse the aging process. And in recent years, there's been some really interesting uh, small-scale clinical studies showing that you could actually administer different kinds of drug cocktails uh, to test subjects who after that period of, uh, after the study was completed, actually had a biological age that was younger than their actual chronological age. That is, they not only arrested, but they reversed the aging process, though to a very limited degree. But, but, but based on these kind of studies and other insights that are being developed into the biology of aging, uh, there are now scientists who believe that we could literally intervene in such a way to extend human life expectancy to several hundred years, really on the order of what we see described in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. Uh, and th these are serious scientific and biomedical proposals that are on the table that are highly credible uh, proposals. Uh, and so if we are now looking at being able to intervene to extend human life expectancy to that degree, suddenly these long lifespans in Genesis 5 and 11 gain, you know, gain credibility, right? It allows us to look at them in a fresh perspective that sees them as, as actually being plausible. And it turns out that some of the, the, the mechanisms that are connected with aging involve, uh, um, involve uh, very subtle changes in biochemistry. In other words, in laboratory animals, by tweaking the expression levels of certain enzymes, you can literally extend life expectancy of that model organism by a factor of 30 or 40 percent. Uh, and uh, if that's the case, then you could envision a scenario where God actually created human beings to live for several hundred years. And as Genesis 6 tells us, 
that the only thought on the in the heart of people uh, um, was evil all the time. That you know, and then we're and God is described as no longer wanting to contend with humans, looking to shorten our life expectancy to no more than 120 years. That God could have intervened in such a way to modify our biochemistry ever so subtly to shorten our life expectancy. And in fact, when you look at the genealogies in Genesis 11, you see a progressively shorter life expectancy for the different patriarchs that are listed uh, in, in Genesis 11. And so that would be our model for the long lifespans. But it also relates to your question about the flood, right? Because the original command given to humanity was to multiply and fill the earth and to subdue the earth, to bring it under our control. Humanity apparently resisted that, that command that we didn't migrate around the world. And as a result of that, you know, humanity ended up forming this population that became increasingly depraved, so much so that God brought about judgment on humanity through a flood event. Now, I see the flood as being a local event, not a global event, but that that local event impacted all of humanity. It was universal in that extent. And that, again, Noah and his family were the ones that survived that event and were then given that command again to multiply and fill the earth. And still it seems as if humanity resisted that <laughs> because ultimately it looks as if God has to intervene to scatter humanity and to confound their languages in, in order to ensure that humanity uh, no longer unites as a single group, but is forced into varying uh, populations that are no longer able to interact with each other, and as a result of that, are now beginning to migrate around the world, fulfilling the command that God gave. Um, <laughs> so much I have questions about. Is there evidence of an actual uh, flood in that part of the world? Um, no, there's not. Uh, and, and this is part of the reason why we would argue that it was a local flood, because even as as you know, even though I would say the flood was a local flood, it still was a flood of an enormous magnitude. And it's quite interesting to me that there are a number of, um, you know, ancient stories connected with different people groups around the world that seemingly describe some kind of great cataclysmic flood. And so that suggests to me that those accounts are some kind of ancient memory echoing the, 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 the Genesis 1 through 11 account or the Genesis 6 through 9 account more appropriately, uh, and that it, the flood indeed was a real event. But I don't, there's not scientific evidence for that, but I don't think you would expect there to be scientific evidence for a, a flood event, even though it was of that magnitude. Uh, you just simply wouldn't expect that event to leave behind any clear telltale sign that it actually happened. Okay. So um, your your last point, you say humanity spread around the world from somewhere in or near the Middle East. And so I'd like to ask what evidence we have for some sort of rapid explosive migration that started in the Middle East. But now I'm going to kind of double up on questions here because there's this little statement you made in your book uh, about in Genesis 10, where in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. And you say this might have something to do with the breaking apart of a land bridge. So it kind of ties into this question about a migration. Uh, so could you talk about the evidence for a migration and this idea of Genesis 10 actually talking about a land bridge? So could you talk about those two things? Yeah, yeah. And um, what we see scientifically, and this is utilizing uh, genetic data, uh, Y-chromosomal data, the same data that's used to discover Y-chromosomal atom actually shows uh, a pattern of migration for humanity that begins, again, at or near the Middle East, where you see uh, the migration seemingly beginning uh, in East Africa, going through the Middle East, and then humans going into Asia, then from Asia back into Europe, and then from ultimately from the Siberian region into the Americas. 
uh, and the, the, that pattern of spread uh, is consistent with what I would expect it to look like if indeed, again, there was a spreading or a scattering of humanity you know, after the Tower of Babel incident. Uh, and uh, again, you have this very interesting phrase uh, in the land in the days that the land was divided, and you know it's fun to speculate that perhaps this is indeed corresponding to uh, the breaking of land bridges or the forming and the breaking of land bridges, uh, because uh, you know about fifteen to twenty thousand years ago there was a land bridge that would have connected um, uh, Asia to uh, to, to North America, but there are also land bridges uh, that would have been uh, connecting uh, New Zealand and Australia uh, to uh, Southeast Asia as well. And these would all have been uh, facilitating the migration of humanity into these different parts of the world so that when sea levels began to rise and those land bridges were lost, you would now have humans, in a sense, isolated in these different parts of the world. So, you know, it, the scientific evidence, again, in a, re, in a remarkable way, seems to correspond to the biblical account of humanity spread around the world. Okay, Fuzz, it's about that time we uh, wrap up the show. I want to ask you, um, if I was to give you evidence that there <laughs> is a living Neanderthal in a basement in Denver, Colorado... Uh, how would you respond to that? <laughs> I, you don't have to Rather respond. convincing. <laughs> no, you don't have to. But go for it. You're about to say something. I want to know. Yeah, you know, you know, that, you know, I don't, it doesn't matter who you are, right? What your worldview is, what your philosophical perspective is. Everybody seems to be fascinated with Neanderthals. Who were they? What were, was their capability? You know, what, what were they like? You know, uh, how much were they like us? How much were they different from us? I and just so, put the camera on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the question, you know, if there was, if you said you had a Neanderthal in a basement in Colorado, I would want to be one of the first people to be there. To see, to see I myself. do get a lot of visitors in Colorado. There's a lot of people that come. And, you know, and I might, just, I might just me. simply have a syringe and a test tube looking for a blood sample. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's actually do uh, a little bit of closing thought here. So uh, I'll go first to my Neanderthal buddy who is in a literal basement in Colorado, Michael Miller. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> uh, okay, Michael, what's your closing thought? Um, well, I, I would say the whole thing is fascinating. One, I mean, in large part, because I feel like what you're doing is is using science to actually show how everything we read about in the scriptures could actually be true. I still have some lingering questions, like things like the Nephilim and stuff like that. Like, where is there archaeological evidence for these kind of things that exist both before and after the flood? So it's, it's one, it's helped settle uh, some questions that I had. I didn't realize... Uh, uh, the massive leaps between Neanderthal and human beings, but then, um, and but then still left me with several questions. Uh, that I mean, it'd be awesome if we could find the answers to some of these things. Okay, and uh, Fuzz, I want to actually volley it over to you and ask you the same thing. If there was something kind of like a nutshell, sorry, I could put the camera on myself. I'm a rookie at this. Um, so if if um, if there was a closing sort of nutshell summarized thought or maybe just something you really want uh, people to take away with this uh, conversation, uh, what would that be for you? Um, that th number one, that um, as Christians, we shouldn't be fretful or, or feel threatened by the science of, of anthropology. Clearly, this is a discipline that is deeply rooted and steeped within the evolutionary paradigm. But, but when we tease away the data from the paradigm itself, what we see are some interesting discoveries that echo or resonate with the biblical account of human origins. I think it would be hard-pressed to say that they demonstrate unequivocally the truth of the biblical account of human origins. But for those of us who take that the biblical account of human origins as being literally and historically true, uh, 
you know, that, that we can feel confident that what we embrace here is credible from a scientific perspective. Though there are many questions, Michael, that I have too, right, that I, I don't quite know the answer to. And there are times where things that I thought were fairly well established get overturned. And there are times where things that I think there's no hope that we're ever going to have any kind of resolution suddenly become crystal clear, right? And, and so this is a, a dynamic project. It's a work in progress. Uh, but um, again, it, 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 the, the, the resonance between the scientific record and the biblical account is remarkable, I think, and is, it brings some measure of comfort and confidence to me. Uh, and, you know, and ultimately, you know, the biblical account of human origins is, you know, given to us primarily in Genesis 1 through 11. And we're, we're looking through the glass dimly. That, that, that on one hand, these are, the, the message of those, that, uh, that section of scripture is very clear. But when we start looking at the details, we are looking through the glass dimly. We're also looking through the glass dimly scientifically. Uh, trying to make sense of, of the question of human origins. And so it's a, it's, it's a discipline that's highly speculative, where new discoveries completely overturn what people have long held to be the case from an evolutionary perspective. So, you know, we, we are, you know, operating at a disadvantage. But even when in light of that, again, it's still remarkable to me the congruence that we see between the scientific record and the biblical account. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. And Fuzz, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And I just, I really appreciate the way that, that if the science comes in and it maybe even seems to contradict one of the, uh, the theses that you put out there for your uh, creation model, you'll adjust it. And, and what that shows me about you, Fuzz, is that you're, you want to pursue truth in the, in the most unbiased way possible. Of course, we're all biased. But that's actually what a, I mean, it's what a, a scientist is supposed to do is a scientist is supposed to say, OK, well, this this outlier disproves this theory. So let's kind of go back to the drawing board and we're supposed to kind of always be doing that. So I, I appreciate your passion for truth and your your belief in biblical truth as well as lowercase t truth, whether it's science or anything else. So thanks so much again for coming on the show. I just want to say to our viewers uh, who are watching right now or who watch later and, uh, and all of our listeners and podcast world out there, uh, just to, uh, to share this podcast with your friends. If you're watching it, hit that like and subscribe button and, uh, share this podcast around and, and other remnant radio, uh, podcasts. And check out our e-course. Well. Yeah. Check out our e-course. Uh, like I said, uh, at the top of the show, that link is in the description and other links too, if you want to consider donating to the ministry. So, uh, thanks you guys so much for joining us. We'll see you on Wednesday. We're going to do a Q and A uh, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So uh, look forward to uh, to seeing you guys for that. Uh, Fuzz, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to the next time. God bless you guys. Have a great week. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the pro promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.